0: Welcome to the Milwaukee Product Brew Podcast. Every month at Northwestern Mutual's Cream City Labs, product leaders from across the city gather to talk about business and leadership, emerging technologies, and share the tips and tricks to become a better product manager. If a community of over 500 product-obsessed Milwaukeeans sounds like your thing, we'd love to have you join us. Visit mkeproductbrew.com to learn more. This episode takes us to February 12, 2020 at Cream City Labs, where Product Brew founder Monica Rosenfeld introduces Brandon DeWitt, co-founder and CTO of MX, a digital transformation platform serving over 2,000 fintech partners and over 30 million end users. He shares his story and imparts important learnings for building impactful teams and scaling a successful organization.
1: Despite the fact that I actually speak all the time, I was just telling Monica that I get horribly nervous every single time before I speak, Um, and I think this is just an an affliction that's going to influence me for the rest of my life, and so um, here to talk uh, a bit about product management, also a lot of my story has to do with uh, uh, being an entrepreneur, and so there's kind of like this wonderful kind of like place at the kernel of a new business where like product and engineering and entrepreneurship all come together and so I'm probably you know better at that than product management generally but just a little bit about myself um, I uh, I uh, used to work at Nike as an engineer uh, actually my, my friend over here Adam Hutchison and I he also works at MX um, we were recruited by the NSA after university um, and then ended up in Indianapolis, actually, at a small banking software firm. Um, that banking software firm got bought by a firm in Europe called General Universal Stores. Then they spun off, they bought TRW, and they spun off what is called Experian, the largest credit bureau in the world. And uh, throughout that, uh, I found myself uh, in charge of product management for North America for decision systems inside of Experian at, like, 24, 25 Um, because we went through three exit events in quick succession. And what happens when you go through three exit events in quick succession is everybody that knew enough to care got enough money to not care, and they all left. Um, And so uh, I end up at 24, 25, uh, you know, running engineering teams and and product management uh, really, you know, across the United States and North America and then also uh, across the globe beyond that. I decided to leave that because I was 24, 25, and I worked in a huge bureaucracy, and there was more left in me than wearing suits every day. Um, And decided to start a company about six months later, sold that company, started another company. It was a marketing services company, sold that company, started another company about a year later, sold that company, and now have started another company that we are almost 10 years into that. Uh, It's called MX. Uh, We're probably not going to talk much about MX, but Uh, I'm going to talk a lot more about product, the inspiration that got to get here, and then also entrepreneurship, and then uh, happy to talk about literally whatever you want to talk about. Um, But a little bit about me, you know, I'm influential uh, about uh, Justin Bieber, Unicorns, and Michael Bolton, and if there's any karaoke in town, we can examine at least two of those. Um, and so, a little bit about me, this is actually back when uh, the site Clout even existed. And unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, <clears throat> but, what I'm, what I'm actually thinking of doing, this is, this is what I was contemplating is, is coming up here and talking about, because talking generally about like the practice that we are all in, but then specifically about product management um, in general. And so, I was actually going to go through a bit of a presentation that I give. And then go backwards and be like, why did I actually give this presentation? Why did I create the presentation this way? Why does it flow this way? And why, as someone who makes their entire living and their entire practice and passion and purpose, is based on being very concise in the presentation of information and yet thorough enough that thousands of institutions can sign up and actually get on board with our company, even in something that is as high level as this presentation and what kind of like motivations and product decisions lead to putting that all together. And so I'm kind of gonna go forward through it and then back up through it and tell you why, why is this presentation the way that it is. Um, So yes, Uh, one of the things that I'd love to talk about is uh, Arthurian legend. And so this is the once and future king. I don't know if anybody actually knows um, when banking was officially started in our world, the first bank that we actually know of in our world was called the Knights Templar. And the, the people of the Knights Templar, they, they actually created this group. You can look it up, check out Wikipedia. Get lost in this rabbit hole on Wikipedia because you will enjoy your night, I promise. The first bank we ever knew of was called the Knights Templar, but in order to actually join the Knights Templar and actually be part of that bank, you had to take a vow of poverty. It was so powerful. The idea of interest over time and lending money was so powerful that the first time humanity ever came across it, they said, you have to take a vow of poverty to participate in it. Otherwise you are going to take advantage of it against all the people that are out there, and we're not going to trust you. And so it's a a, a really, really, really big deal. Um, You know, if, if I'm going to start a new bank, we're going to call it the Templar, and we're going to take vows of poverty. So if anybody wants to join as our head of product, you let me know. We'll take your poverty vow tonight. And uh, we won't worry about splitting profits. Um, Clearly that's not something that's realistic in our day and age, but it is something that was extremely real uh, when banking was first invented. Um, You know what what we do at MX is we actually process a ton of data and we manifest that data into experiences, but at the beginning of MX, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're starting a new job, you're going to go through this period in which, quite frankly, one of of the pieces of advice I'll give you is send yourself an email every time you cry because you want an email every time you cry. That way, later, you can go back and say, why the hell did I cry? What was I going through? What can I do better about that? How can I not run out of money next time I try and start a company? Because running out of money sucks. Um, So this was actually after uh, my first company that, quite frankly, we didn't we didn't expect to sell it in six months. And when you start a company, you should be planning to stay with that company for a decade and we we got involved with one client. That client eventually at the end of their implementation said, you know what, we're just gonna buy this thing and they bought it from us. And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I gonna do with the rest of my life then if this whole six months is over? Um, And I moved to a cornfield Uh, in the middle of Indiana, just outside of Bloomington, Indiana, and uh, drank a lot of wine. Um, And one night, uh, deep into a bottle of wine, I ended up writing myself this email. Literally, Gmail is my catalog of entrepreneurship. This is a screenshot of the email that I wrote myself about what do I want out of my journey. Because it's not going to be about money. It's not going to be about all those things that that people think that they're attached to, but what do I really want deep in my soul? There's a wonderful uh, European economist named John Kay who wrote a book called Obliquity. And in it, I love his—I his, how he frames money. He says, money is a leader and never a follower. I mean, whoa, 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 the other way. Money's a follower and never a leader. And so if you ever set up a business where money is the chief goal, you will almost assuredly never hit it. If you set up a business where your chief goal is something else, then you have a a probability of hitting it or at least a possibility of hitting it. And so how do you set up not having money be the leader of your business? And so I wrote myself this email and these are the bullet points when I said, Brandon, what do you want to do with the rest of your life and your next business? And this is literally a screenshot of the email. First, be passionate to the point of ridicule. Find something that's actually worth being made fun of for. It's totally good to do. And I love it because we as humans, if, if we have an expectation that we're going into something that we'll be ridiculed about, we're totally fine with it. But when we go into situations and we like really think that, that we have a great idea and it's not going to be ridiculed and we're perfect children of God and all ideas are wonderful and everybody gets the blue ribbon in physical education, if we believe that, then we just get pummeled with ridicule and we let it absolutely destroy us. And so the first thing I laid out was, Be passionate to the point of ridicule. Give a shit enough to allow people to actually call you out and say, I'm going to ridicule over how much you care about it. You have no idea how much this will liberate you as an individual just living your life. But when it's an individual who's actually driving forward a product, a purpose, a passion, I promise you it will change everything about how you view the world. Two, find ways to practice objectivity. I found that I was severely lacking objectivity in my life. Um, You know, as as I had this, like, weird rise at Experian, people, you know, as you might imagine, would just be like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing at engineering. And I'm like, I don't think I'm that amazing. I don't think I am. I think it's actually that there's just a lot of meetings where people say yes. And so how am I going to actually validate if I'm actually good or not good at something? Because it's a really, really difficult thing to do. Find ways to practice objectivity. At university, I studied music composition, and so this next one's all about music composition. Dissonance is the only thing that makes consonants worth hearing. And a music composition professor, we'd play music all the time, and he'd have us write a piece that's only consonant, that only sounds good. And then at the end of it, he was like, do you see how fucking boring that is? Nobody cared. It was just a bunch of, like, nice tones. And he, he really would stress this. Dissonance is the only thing that makes consonants worth hearing. Couple this with uh, be passionate to the point of ridicule. Dissonance is the only thing that makes consonants worth hearing. Enjoy that. When people come to you and say, I don't like what you've done, you've just found a boundary, and that boundary informs the directionality of your future. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, people lie, emotions lie, partners lie, statistics don't lie. Follow where the statistics and metrics lead and learn to read them. This is hugely important. How do you derive metrics? How do you derive data? How do you learn to read them? How do you learn to be good at it? And when you have to make a decision from your gut, how do you take all the data that you have and make the best informed decision that you can? Hugely important. Uh, I love this next one because I think it's colored every day of the rest of my life, which is the probability of ecstasy or tragedy of every moment will be influenced by your attitude. The probability of ecstasy or tragedy of every moment is going to be influenced by your attitude. How do you take on the world as it takes you on? Are you actually here? Are you at the whim of the world? Or, I like to say this a lot, are you a victim of your circumstance or are you creator of your circumstance? And how you determine that will determine every day of the rest of your life. Direction doesn't matter, traction and progress does, just go. Even if you're going the wrong way, you'll figure out traction and progress. Turn the other way. Study and understand the core motivators of humanity. Philosophy. We talk a lot about philosophy at MX. Money is the byproduct of value. Value is the byproduct of hard work. Read, 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 read. Unplug from the ad machines. You know what the ad machines are. I don't have to tell you. The ad machines will influence your every single waking second if you allow them to, unplug from them, spend time in your own thoughts, spend time in your own vision of the world. Ad machines will, will force you down a chute that you don't want to be in. Um, integrity matters more. Integrity matters more. doesn't matter what else is out there, integrity matters more. Find out what's real, what matters, and what you value. Uh, This is a real email I sent myself before starting the current company that we have right now, and every single time, every year, I go through with myself and I go, have I violated any of these things in my endeavors throughout this year? Because I knew what I set up, what I wanted to attain from day zero, and I don't want to violate any of those things on my journey. (laughs) <laughs> and hopefully, you know, these are things that, that we absolutely aspire to and that we live at MX day in and day out. Part of the read, read, read part, we actually give out two books to everybody that joins MX. One is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, vocabulary is super important. I tell people all the time, like, the superpower of the Homo sapien. You know, if you, if you go and read uh, a book like Sapiens, you get to find out about, like, you know, uh, other Homo species that have been on this planet, there's Homo erectus and Homo agander and all these other species that have been on this planet that look like us, that have fingers like us, that have brains similar to us. But like Homo erectus that existed before us, they were bigger than us. Their brains were larger cc's than ours were. And so we fundamentally believe that they were smarter than us. In fact, in, in uh, sapiens, uh, they, they estimate that it took 10 Homo sapiens to kill one of our predecessors. Ten. And so, like, what was our competitive advantage? Why did Homo sapien become the dominant species on the planet? And the general belief is there's two things. One, we were the only species that was willing to hunt outside of our familial groups. We were willing to create societies. We were willing to reach outside of our familial group and say, there's no way that we survive alone. We only survive together. Let's get our shit in line and go take out those gigant Neanderthals. And the second one was we're the only known ones that had vocabulary. We could actually signal over large distances to one another and coordinate. And so vocabulary matters so much. If I, if I can like convey one thing to the product management level, is dial in your vocabulary. Your vocabulary is so wildly important. And uh, there's actually a wonderful, wonderful essay that you should read by David Foster Wallace called Authority in American Usage. And it's all about how the English language becomes the English language and the authority that is imbued in the individuals that decide what is English and what is not in the huge war that is taking place between the two factions, the prescriptivists and the descriptivists. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful essay by probably one of the best uh, uh, literature writers of our age um, that really talks about this fight for language is at the very heart of how we talk about things like politics, about how we talk about things like happiness, about how we talk about things like liberty and agency and all these other things that influence our day to day. I cannot echo enough how important uh, vocabulary is. And so we give away the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance because that's our canonical reference for vocabulary around quality. Because if you ever enter any company in the world The number one thing that you will argue with everyone about is, what is quality? And so we create, we took a book, which is the manual on quality, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and we say, hey, here it is. Live by it or die by it. This is how we speak about quality. This is how we judge quality. These are the things that we will talk about when talking about if you're the right fit for this organization or not. The other one is actually a book by David Foster Wallace, which is This Is Water. And This Is Water is not about the quality of what we do, but it's actually about the quality about how we interact with each other. The premise of the story is there's these two young fish swimming along. They happen to meet a fish swimming the other way. Nods at them and says, hey, boys, how's the water? Two young fish swim for a little bit longer. One of them looks at the other and says, what the hell is water? And so what the hell is water? What, what the hell is water? Water is that it doesn't matter what line you get in at the grocery store, you, you could be in the line with one person in front of you and the next line has 16 people in front of them and you are gonna have a person in front of you with 36 coupons, six are gonna be expired, they have to call the manager of produce to make sure that the banana is not already cut open and 50% off and you're gonna wait there forever The water of life is that on your drive here this morning, you were driving in and somebody cut you off. The water of life is that our default mode, it is easier for us to be condescending, than it's easier than than for us to be uplifting. And we have to choose, what is the water that we are going to swim in? What's the water that we're gonna tolerate in our organizations? What are the water that we're gonna tolerate on our teams? How do we set a standard to change the default mode of humanity and say, Our water will not involve condescension. Our water will absolutely involve support and uplifting structures around you. Because we want the whole team to be successful, then the individual will be successful. We give everyone this book on a quarterly basis in engineering. We actually watch a video called This is Water, because we have to remind it to one another. I mean, if if you've worked with engineers in here, I mean, goodness gracious, if some people can be condescending, it's us nerds. you know, and, and we'll do it without you even know what, knowing what we're talking about. We'll, uh, you know, talk about technologies and be like, <laughs> and that's what we do. That's what we do. We have to change our mindset. We have to change how we think about the world. We have to be better human beings for the beneficiary of humanity.
0: Thank you to Northwestern Mutual for producing the Milwaukee Product Brew. And a special shout-out to Roman, Monica, and Denise for making it all happen. Another special shout-out to Alpha, who helped produce Product Brew and connect together the relentlessly curious people who are building the future. You can learn more about this effort at alphahq.com buildingthefuture. And now, back to the episode.
1: It's a big deal. A, a big thing that we do, and this is something that I believe in, I was going to talk about this when we went backwards, but I'll tell you about it going forward. If I can give you another piece of advice, vocabulary vitally important. Second to that is aphorisms, managed by aphorisms, we manage like crazy by aphorisms. What's an aphorism? You might ask. An aphorism is like, a watch pot doesn't boil, because believe it or not, watch pots do boil. You might not know that, they do. Watch pots boil. It just takes a really long time, and you're boring, and you're bored, and you're angry at the end of it. And so you tell people, hey, a watch pot doesn't boil, and they're like, oh, great, I don't have to worry about watching the pot. Got it. Understood. And so the general truisms about life, you can apply to generally any situation, because fundamentally at MX, we believe that organizations should not be driven by policy, but by philosophy because one of the aphorisms that we have is any sufficient policy-driven organization will be subordinated to a philosophy-driven organization. Does that mean that we don't have policies? Oh no, we've got lots of policies. But it means that as we introduce a policy, we absolutely have to weigh that against the success that philosophies have in orienting behavior day in and day out. And so we manage by a set of aphorisms. All these aphorisms are everywhere around our office and the first aphorism we started with with was, it's everybody's job to get shit done. Because we were only like 12 people. And when you have 12 people and eight of them think that they're supervisors, shit doesn't get done. So, the aphorism we start with is, it's everybody's job to get shit done. If you are here and not getting shit done, You might not have a job, is the implication, because it's everybody's job to get shit done. It forces people into this mindset of thinking, these aphorisms, very easy to manage by Another aphorism that we have, which our marketing team puts silver bullets up here, but I'll tell you the real deal. Um, Another aphorism we have, This happens because in software organizations, if you've ever talked to a software company, if you've ever worked in a software company, if you've ever managed in a software company, you know that given enough time and the sales team being alone, they will invent a talk track that has your software curing cancer. And you're like, whoa, doesn't cure cancer. Doesn't do that. You guys need to calm down the tone here. There are no silver bullets. And so, as that begins to creep up inside of a group, as that begins to creep up inside of a company, one of the aphorisms that we manage by, and this is on everywhere around MX, is there's no such thing as a silver bullet, only a fuckload of lead ones. And so, if you think that we are in a silver bullet situation, you're in the wrong group. Takes hard work. Takes every single day showing up and pushing the process forward to make this successful. And, uh, you know, some of you I was in a meeting with today, I'm certain that you heard silver bullets a couple times. And, happily, you actually heard it from our sales guy in the room um, of, uh, there's no such thing as silver bullets. Well-trained, Emron, well-trained. You know, you, you hammer it into somebody's head of, like, as soon as you start selling silver bullets, you're in a bad place. You're leading people the wrong direction. They know that there's no such thing as silver bullets. These days, I think the, uh, the biggest silver bullet that's on the market that everybody wants to sell you is artificial intelligence. Don't worry. Don't worry. Artificial intelligence will solve it for us. Really, artificial intelligence is just a way to procrastinate until you find out it doesn't work, and then you have to find out that there's a bigger problem. There are very small areas in which AI is applicable, things like image processing, video recognition, things like that. Um, but even that is not 100%, uh, is, is certainly no way 100% um, uh, reliable. And, uh, you know, I'm the guy on the stage telling you this, and by the way, like, I literally hold several patents in neural networks and in deep learning and I'm telling you, it doesn't, it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't solve problems. Uh, Those patents are very meaningful and they're very focused. Uh, They are not uh, general uh, artificial intelligence. Um, As you, as you might imagine what happens as you start growing a team with these aphorisms, you've probably experienced this because if you work at a giant organization, you've probably experienced this a lot the reason that we have this aphorism, which is, make mistakes of boldness, not of timidity, is because as you start growing and succeeding, and as you start making your way forward in the industry, you start to realize that the number of people that get that, that, that get CC'd and BCC'd on every email goes up, and you're like, okay, it's just an email about where we're have and Two vice presidents and an EVP and the COO and two board members are CC'd on this. So somebody's trying to cover their ass. So they're worried about uh, when we're gonna go to lunch. You start realizing that every day, like the micro decisions that are made every day, everybody just puts a list of like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna CC my manager, the director, the VP, just to make sure that they know I'm doing my job. And so what happens is, is as everybody builds up these walls between themselves, they're doing it because they're afraid of making a mistake. They're afraid of not having the oversight that they're doing everything right, and that's what we call CYAing. ing um, I experience this a lot in big organizations, and so when we started experiencing this at MX, we came up with a new aphorism. Make mistakes of boldness, not of timidity. And really what you do is you find places where people really fuck up, in a bold way, and you say, hey, it's time to get you a $50,000 bonus. Let's tell the whole company about it. You know what? Bill fucked up in a huge way. Really crashed it. And, man, thank you. Thank you for being bold. We were able to fix it. Don't worry about it. We're fine. But thank you for being bold. You start creating that culture of, like, boldness is no longer something that's a dirty word, Timidity starts to become the thing that people go. Whoa, why are you copying so many people? I wouldn't do that. That's not really a really way to get ahead here. Um, uh, you're going to get booted. And so people need to actually like set up these ideas in their head to know how they should be behaving. These are the aphorisms that matter a whole lot. Um, this is actually one of my favorite quotes, um, but I was ruminating it on a while about two years ago. I think one of the things that really separates us from the high primates is that we're tool builders. You probably heard this from Steve Jobs. You know, Steve Jobs then tells a story about how, like, you know, uh, the computer is the bicycle of the mind, um, you know, which is an interesting idea. It's a really great analogy, right? Analogies, aphorism, allegory. These things are, like, very important in communicating, like, concise ideas to a broad audience. But uh, I love this quote. One time I was actually, though wanted to dig in on it. I was like, where did this come up from? And so this is actually the study that Steve Jobs references, which is the man on the bicycle ranks first in efficiency amongst traveling animals and machines in terms of energy consumed and moving certain distances as a function of body weight. What does that mean? Body weight is down here in kilograms. Cost of transport in calories per gram per kilometer is up here. You get really, really, really low body weight, a fruit fly, but a fruit fly's entire life, is about flying 25 feet and then dying on the other end of it. And so, like, all the energy that exists in its whole life does that. You even move into things like, um, you know, horses and the plane and the fighter jet and the helicopter. They can get you very far distances, but the, calor- the calorie per uh, gram per kilometer for an airplane is incredibly high. It costs us. Uh, us being the world it costs us a lot to generate that and to spend it and so so it's a really really difficult thing and then down here we have the man on the bicycle right um, and and a man on a bicycle can eat an apple and can bike for 50 miles and it's this incredible thing and so of course it's it's you know very apt to uh, to Steve Jobs to tell you well the computer is a man on a bicycle so everybody go buy a computer um, but there's this really, interesting idea in here that I began to notice as I started digging into this, and that is, how the hell do we get to a bicycle? Like, humanity's been around for maybe 10, 25,000 years in our current form. Um, How the hell do we get to a bicycle? That's an interesting idea. It's the most efficient machine that's ever been created on our planet in terms of calories per distance. And, you know, if you think about it, we've had wheels. I mean, we've had wheels since... 3000 BC, right? So wheels have existed for a really long time. What is a bicycle? It's a wheel, it's a chain drive, Um, it's a frame, right? Like all this stuff coming together and this is a really interesting idea. So if you look at this, here's a chain drive from 1300 BC over in China, right? And so they had a chain drive, but let's even, you know, because we're here in the Western world, we like to forget what China got to way before us. Here we are in the Western world. Here's our comparison here with Leonardo da Vinci, right? Leonardo da Vinci in 375 AD to 425 AD ends up building a chain drive, ends up having it on a frame, and he comes up with basically a tank that shoots big wooden arrows, right? And so Leonardo da Vinci, the greatest inventor of our time, In 400 AD has all of the components for the bicycle in his garage and he puts together the bicycle and liberated us from walking. That's not what happened at all. Leonardo da Vinci didn't do that shit. So what actually happened? He has everything. He has everything. He has all the money in the world in his place. It's 400 AD. It's 400 AD and he does not come up with the most efficient machine ever. In fact, This is a bit of pub trivia, if you ever need it. The automobile was created before the bicycle. The automobile was patented in 1880 by Carl Benz. The bicycle as it exists today, right up there, did not exist until 1885. We created something far more complex well before we got to the most efficient machine that mankind has ever known. This is down the freaking fairway of being a product manager, okay? You are sitting in a garage, I guarantee right now, if you are a product manager out there today, you're sitting in a garage with a bicycle, a frame, a chain drive, and you're trying to figure out how to build a space shuttle. Because a bicycle is just too damn easy to come up with, right? So it took... 1,400 years from the time that every single piece that makes up a bicycle existed in the smartest man of all of humanity's existence, garage, took 1,400 more years for us to put it together, and we only did it after the automobile existed. My question for you and for everyone that I meet with is like, what is sitting in the garage right now that you can just start iterating on the bicycle? And I promise you, you're going to start by thinking you're creating a space shuttle and you need to cut it all the way into being a bicycle because a bicycle today is still more efficient, more usable, uh, more available to the human condition than an automobile is. It's wildly, wildly, wildly important. I think about this almost every single day that I wake up and go into the office it is – which, which bicycle that's sitting here am I missing? Um, which leads me to, I know it's a little bit of an aside, but believe me, it's like part of my thought process. Um, which leads me to, to, four years ago, actually, goodness gracious, four years ago, four years ago on February 26th, uh, this became our latest aphorism that we posted at X. Seemingly impossible, certainly improbable, but necessary. And Really, why do you come up with that aphorism? Well, really, we came up with that aphorism because we came across a problem that looked like it was impossible, and that even if, it was possible, impo- even if it was possible, it was quite improbable, but it was absolutely necessary. And so when you put this aphorism out to a team, people start going, okay, I already know that the problem's really freaking hard. I don't have to be the engineer in the back of the room going, you guys know this problem's hard. You know this is a hard problem. Do you know P doesn't equal NP? Do you know that? This is it a hard problem? It's like, no, we got it. It's a hard freaking problem. In fact, it's nearly impossible. We're still gonna take a swing at it. And so everybody get your shit together. We're taking a swing at this thing. It's certainly improbable. Right, like, we're gonna we're gonna give that to you at the outset. We're not even we're not even gonna debate as to whether this is improbable, we're gonna say, chance of failure is 99%. But it's necessary. And so, we have to go after this thing. And this is what happens. As engineering teams grow, you get more and more engineers that are just like the doubters. You know what I'm talking about. You get more and more people that are like, I invented the space shuttle and I know that we can't do this for them. And you're like, what, what? Yeah, you've experienced it, (laughs) yeah. And so, so what happens that confronts you in this way? Um, And what happened four years ago that confronted us in this way is four years ago on February twenty-sixth. Actually, four years ago on January fifteenth, it was my thirty-third birthday, and the left side of my face went paralyzed. And I honestly thought that I was allergic to Brussels sprouts which I was like, hey, this is kind of weird, and I was kind of having fun with it. Um, But then I had to go to the hospital, and they poked needles in it, and they're like, oh, yeah, nerves don't work at all. They're like, no big deal. You had the flu this year. Don't worry about it, um, because it's just a Bell's palsy. It'll wear off in four weeks. didn't wear off four weeks later. Went to the hospital. I said, we're going to check some other stuff. We're going to see what's going on. They called me on February 26th, and I was sitting in my office, and they said, hey, Brandon, we don't normally have you in to have this conversation, but there's just no point. There's no time. You've got stage four cancer. You've got 18 tumors throughout your head and your neck and your lungs. And you're probably not going to live 30 days. You're certainly not going to live 90. And this is the end of the journey for you. You need to put your house in order and you need to tie up everything you're doing. And unfortunately, this is the end. And I was like, I don't think you called the right guy. This is not a great time to have a conversation about data quality. Um, But I run every day on the phone. I'm like, I run every day, Doc, and I feel great. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still hitting it every day. I'm fine, I'm great. He's like, no, we've checked it, we've double checked it, we've triple checked it. And unfortunately, you're about to hit the worst of the symptoms. And uh, I flew back home to Chicago. I'm, fr- I'm originally from just south of, south of Chicago, Peoria, Illinois. Um, I flew back home to visit with my family that night and said, hey, this is the end of the journey for me because it's way too advanced for me to back it up now. And, and when I did that, the team at MX, if you saw this map at MX, it's the size of a wall. The team at MX came into MX all weekend. The engineers came in, the product people came in. And that's when we came up with the aphorism of seemingly impossible, certainly improbable, but necessary. Because our team got together and wrote it on a wall and said, we have a necessary hurdle. And we get it. It's fucking impossible. We've already been told we have less than 90 days. We've already been told, probabilistically, less than 30 days. It's certainly improbable. If we even could contact the scientist in the world who might have a solution to this, the probability that that scientist is willing to engage on this problem right now with this advanced nature is next to zero. But anybody who doesn't want to participate in this, step out of the room right now, because we're going. And we're going all the way. And I came back on the Monday. I left on a Friday. I came back on the Monday, and they presented me this plan. And they said, here's the history of your cancer, scan after scan after scan. Here's details specifically about your cancer, the genetic actual mutation that you have, and how that genetic mutation manifests. And unfortunately, this is a super rare cancer, like 1 in 10 million cancer. There's 36 cases this advanced in the United States right now. And so there's not a lot of people that we can talk to, but here's potential options. And we went through oncolytic virology, and we went through immunotherapy, and we went through targeted therapy, and we've already spun up conversations with 35 of the top scientists in the world. We reached out to them on LinkedIn. We found their cell phone numbers on Google, and we've been calling them all weekend. And we've got 26 of these scientists set up over the next 26 days, and you're gonna be back to back to back to back hitting these scientists and trying to figure out something that's gonna work. And here's the potential paths that we need to take in all the different areas of cancer research, from genomic research to new chemotherapies, targeted therapies, immunotherapies. This is what we're gonna do, and by the way, and this is the biggest thing that just kills me every time. By the way, we know we're on this journey you are going to get down. And we know that you're going to be sitting in a hotel room after 10 no's in a row, and that you are going to be facing your mortality and not ready to stand back up the next day. And so we put together a series of YouTube videos that are known wins, where the individual stood on their deathbed, received a therapeutic treatment, and is still... Alive today. Now, these are the anomalies. These are the one in a hundred million. These are the one in a billion. But we wanted to show you these videos because every single time you get in that trench, we want you to know that there's something there and there's hope. And while it may be impossible or improbable, there is a chance for us to find the right person at the right time. To treat you, and so I went and visited all those things, and and you may have seen like a uh, in in like the the roll up to this meeting. You know, I've raised 175 ish million dollars in capital for endeavors that I've taken on. Uh, it's a lot easier to raise money than it is to find a scientist to save your life when only 36 people have your disease. <laughs> um, Now, raising money, I'm like, shit, I, I don't mind doing that. That's freaking easy compared to the probabilities of doing this. And so we went all these places, the first 12 places, nope, no chance. And every single time I would ask, how do I die? Tell me in excruciating detail, how do I die? Because I want to know when it's going to happen and how long do I have to live. And on that, t- on that little tour that we did, the longest lifespan that I was given was from, uh, was from Seattle, Fred Hutch, which said, potentially 11 months, but I can tell you, you won't be alive in 12. Your cancer's growing too fast. Um, and everybody basically told me the same way that I would die, is eventually the cancer would be so uh, prolific throughout your system that your, your systems will just give up and your liver will stop working, your kidneys will stop working, your lungs may stop working, and this will be the end of the journey for you. <coughs> and so, at this point in time, as you might imagine, when you first discover that you don't need a 401k, you buy a lot of nice wine. Um, because it's like, eh, I don't think I need a 401k anymore, why the hell am I setting all this money aside? And so you end up having plenty of wine. And don't worry about it, because my oncologist at, at, in Seattle, at Fred Hutch, when I first visited her, I was like, Doc, you know, I'm committed to this. I'm giving up sugar. I'm going to be exercising. I'm pretty much just going to eat spinach for the rest of my life. I'm committed to this thing. I'm going to quit drinking. And she looked at me cross-eyed, and she's like, Brandon, you were just diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Now's not the time to stop drinking. Now would actually be the time that you might want to keep drinking. And I was like, oh, well, I didn't didn't know that that was a doctor's order. Thank you, Dr. Rodriguez. Um, And so at the time, though, uh, Google had actually just invested in this company that said they were five years away from being able to solve a subtype of cancer. And so a really good friend of mine, also from the Midwest, Um, who happens to now, uh, you know, cohabitate with my little sister, interestingly enough, in Cincinnati. Um, But uh, a good friend of mine, we were having a bottle of wine, and he said, hey, you know, if I was five years away from solving a subtype of cancer, if I was there, I'd give up everything, my social life, work 100-hour weeks, and try and fast-forward it as much as possible, Because I'd be on the fight, and I'd do it. And maybe in the good friend that I am, and unfortunately sometimes very rational, uh, I said, dude, you are so full of shit. (laughs) Because you're slothful. We're all slothful. I said, dude, you're going to show up for 100 hour weeks for the first two weeks. And then next week it's going to be like 65 hours. Give it about six or seven weeks, and you're going to be doing the 32-hour dance of, I was here at 9.30, have to take off for an appointment at 3.30, that, you know, a lot of people do in the workforce these days, the 32-hour dance, the in and the out. And uh, I decided to kind of prove it to him. interestingly enough, because I went and pulled the World Health Organization data, because when you're about to die, really you just want to make your friends feel bad about the things they said while they were drunk. Um, So I went and pulled the data from the World Health Organization about the reasons for humans' death. Why do humans die? And we've been tracking this since the 80s. The World Health Organization's been saying, hey, we know why people die. We know what happens. And we're going to track these things because it's really important for us to know how to prioritize what to go after as a species. And so these are like really big reasons that humans die. Stomach cancer, liver cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, drug abuse, leukemia, bladder cancer, skin cancer, asthma, alcohol, poisoning, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. These are blights on humanity. You've heard of all of these things. Stomach cancer, really hard to diagnose. 11.1 out of every 100,000 deaths in the world are caused by stomach cancer. Breast cancer, 7.7. Prostate cancer, 7.1. Um, you know, it's basically this cascading list. Stomach cancer being the highest reason for humans' deaths, it's difficult to diagnose. That's a really, really, really big problem in cancer right now, diagnosing stomach cancer. It's a really big deal. But what I told my friend was what's interesting about this list. Is this less seems significant. But way, way, way above stomach cancer on the reasons for humans' death is suicide. And a subsection of suicide is suicide because of financial stress. Because in 2008, there were 10,000 what the US government calls unknown cause of suicides. And they tied it, of course, to the economy. Because you're twice as likely to die from suicide because of financial stress than you are to die from breast cancer. 13.2 out of every 100,000 deaths in the world. There's a lot of reasons into how this is measured and you know the attempts of suicide that people take and the reasons behind it, the number one and number two reason are one, the breaking up of a relationship, that's important, and number two, At 75 to 78 percent of all suicides is suicide because of financial stress. And today, my friend, you're already working on this problem. And you're not here hundred-hour weeks, and you're not driven by the fact that you're on the front lines of this battle. You're only thinking about the first degree of influence that you have. And although it it is not always true that every single time you're on the phone with somebody with financial stress they're going to commit suicide, it is possible to think that that could be the call. I love working with organizations like Northwestern Mutual, because Northwestern Mutual takes on this problem head on. This might not be how they phrase it, but I promise you, in the trenches of deciding the right product for the right person at the right time for the right reasons, There are organizations out there that prey on humanity, and there are organizations out there that lift up humanity. And in my time I've spent with Northwestern Mutual, I promise you, Northwestern Mutual is not one of those organizations that preys on humanity. It's a huge, huge deal. Now, what happened to me? I was getting really, really sick. I went and lived in uh, Boston for a month at Dana-Farber. I got Four infusions a week that took about eight hours a day. Uh, My friend Adam got to sit with me while I had projectile vomit across the hospital room. (laughs) Um, And it didn't work at all. So, the first 30 days, you can actually see that my tumor volume kept going up and up and up and up. And the doctor said, probably the next couple weeks, it's not, you're not going to last. And from there, when it failed, I flew to Seattle. And there was a wonderful scientist and doctor out there named Dr. Christina Rodriguez that said, hey, I'm willing to take a shot. I'm willing to experiment. I remember when I sat down with her and she said, hey, I can tell you right now, even if I do experiment, you're not going to be alive in a year. This is going to actually crush you. And she said, hey, that's all right. Let's take a shot at it. This is all we got. And you can see what happened is, the tumor doubling rate, the cell doubling rate of my tumor changed over the next three months. And then it started dropping over the next three months and even dropping more. And the four centimeter tumors that I had in my lungs all of a sudden were two centimeters. And then they were one centimeter. And from 18 tumors that I had when I was diagnosed to the height of four centimeters throughout my lungs, Today I have one tumor in my lungs that's less than a centimeter in diameter. I'm on chemotherapy five days a week. Took chemo this morning before our meetings. Um, I get an infusion every three weeks. I used to get that infusion in Seattle. I now get it in Utah. Um, Just last Friday I was in Utah and they they were presenting me before the new doctors that were training there. And they were like, you know, almost treating you like a fish in an aquarium. They're like, look at this dude. It's the longest living dude with this disease we've ever seen. We don't know how it worked. We don't know how long it's going to last. But so far, it's been durable up to four years. And the tumors are still going away. And so we, we don't know why that happened or how that happened, but we took a shot at it. Uh, I, I love this quote because I think it really goes to the heart of like the Knights Templar about how much they thought about the stewardship that goes into being in the financial world and all the way to the data that proves that being on the front lines of the financial battle in our species and our society. Thomas Jefferson said, I believe that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. And standing armies because a human can be perverted into believing that they are there for themselves and not for others. Because organizations of humans will prey on other individuals and unless there are great organizations willing to stand up and do the right thing for the right person at the right time, it will destroy our society and our government and eventually our species. It's hugely important. you know. I like to compare it. If you've ever seen this, is the allegory of the cave by Plato. And you know, Plato talks about how there's a man chained to the wall of a cave and he and he sees shadows, and then those shadows get reflected by fire, and you know, the, the man is going to consider the shadow its deity. And they begin to understand, and, and Plato challenges us and says, Where are you in your life in understanding that things are deity when actually They may be very clearly explainable by someone with a different perspective, and the reason that I show this is because if you're in here today and you work in financial services and you're a product manager, you get to stand outside of the cave. You know exactly what's going on. You know there's a fire there. You know a guy's chained to a wall. You know that they can't even see the world around them. They can't even understand the world around them, and it's your job to be able to peer through the darkness and say, it's okay, I know what's going on. I can guide you to the next step. I think this is huge a hugely important analogy for how we stand today, not only with computation, but even things that tend to be more complex than computation, things like financial wellness. Huge amount of inputs, huge amount of outputs, huge amount of complexity. This is a very, very difficult problem. But we stand as the stewards at the top of the cave, being able to describe the entire thing. We actually can be Arthur. We can be the individuals. I, the thing I love about the Arthurian legend is—I is, love it so much—is that if you know the story of Arthur, you've probably seen the Disney the Disney show where Arthur's just this like dude like rolling around in the farm, and then he goes and he can pull the sword from the stone. And he's like, yeah, I'm king. That's not what's actually in the book. This is why you should read The Once and Future King, T.S. White. What's actually in the book is Arthur goes to support his brother. And his brother is a knight. And his brother loses his sword. And Arthur, as the dutiful and supportive brother, says, I can go find you one. And he comes and he draws the sword from the stone and he runs it to his brother who's in a competition in London and he gives it to him and he says, I found this sword. It was in like a, it was in like a graveyard or something. And so I found the sword and you can use it. And his brother starts using it and everybody goes, oh my gosh, he's our king. And Arthur's like, yeah, he's our king. And then when they actually challenge the brother and they say, hey, did you draw the sword? He says, oh yeah, I definitely drew the sword. And Arthur's like, oh yeah, he definitely drew the sword. He's the king. They actually take him back to the graveyard and they put the sword back in the stone. They have the brother try and draw it. And of course he can't draw it. They have Arthur come forward and ask him to draw it. And he ends up being able to draw it after trying to eschew all the notoriety and the popularity, and he finds out that he is actually Arthur Pendragon, the, the king of the known world at the time. But what's beautiful about the story is that he is the only individual who tried drawing a sword for someone else. He did not try drawing a sword for himself. He's the only individual who entered and tried drawing the sword from the stone on behalf of someone else, and even to the point of being challenged and pressed, his only drive was to make sure that somebody that he was not even related to, that he had no relationship with except for being a supportive adopted brother, he said, no, he should absolutely be king. I will gladly serve my adoptive brother, and he is the one that drew the sword, I think that it helps inform day in and day out how we should be thinking about life is that if we are out there drawing swords for ourselves, I promise you, you will never be king. Money is not a leader. It's always a follower. We have to be drawing swords for others. That then played out, of course, into the Arthurian legend of the round table. He asked other kings to join him at the round table of equal status. We have to be willing to do that as individuals if we're going to move forward. We need people that specialize in greatness, but they need to sit at the table with us and have an equal voice with us and be able to contribute with us. And if your entire drive is just to draw swords for others, I promise you, People will hold you up and say, this is the individual that draws swords for others. You want nothing more than this individual on your team drawing swords for you, drawing swords for your organization, drawing swords to impact the world. This is something, again, I think about every single day. Who am I drawing a sword for today? And I do want to say, and I always say, at the end of what my presentation is, life is beautiful. Like, I am the most blessed human being, and for now, I am still alive every single day. I'm stoked about it, but I'm only alive because there was a time four years ago when a lot of people said it's impossible, certainly improbable, but a lot of people got in that room and said it's absolutely necessary, and we're gonna go at it anyway. And if you can imagine it, imagine the last time that you tried to put A change on a drop-down box on your website. Imagine how long it took. I would have been dead if my life depended on a drop-down box on an enterprise website. I would have been dead a drop-down box on an enterprise website, right? And so it took a ton of inspiration, it took a catalytic event, it took a way of organizing, vetting, getting rid of data, and picking the best things that we could prioritize and just going after them and going after them hard. And we had to do it in boldness. And some, for some reason, I am still here today. I have no idea what that is. I confronted my mortality a long time ago. Um, but I'm still here today because people said it is absolutely necessary. Process be damned. Let's move forward in a huge way. And I hope a little bit of my story and my journey can influence your story, your journey, and if your organizations have the types of things that are worth devoting your lives towards, I hope that your organizations succeed along with it. Uh, Thank you for having me out here. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to all of you. So, thanks a
0: If you're thinking Milwaukee Product Brew is a community you'd like to be a part of, we'd love to have you join us. Just go to mkeproductbrew.com to read about past experiences and sign up for future ones. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon.